Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Sarah Ladislaw. I'm the Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. And we're very pleased that all of you could be here to join us both in the room and online uh, for today's uh, presentation of the New Energy Outlook 2019 from Bloomberg NEF. Uh, over the years, it's been a real pleasure for us to host this particular outlook, uh, which looks at the uh, and forecast as an economic forecast of the world's electric power sector. And for those of you who spend a lot of time um, studying both the sort of technology and policy and uh, economic landscape in the electric power sector, you know there's been a huge amount of change. And um, from our perspective at CSIS, um, this is one of the more authoritative outlooks uh, that creatively uh, and, um, and with real sort of you know, in-depth knowledge of what's happening in the sector helps us to think about uh, the changes that we're likely to see over the coming decades. So uh, I am really pleased to welcome Seb Hedmest, who uh, is the lead author and the head of the Europe, Middle East, and Africa uh, program at Bloomberg NEF, to lead us through uh, the outlook this year, and then we'll open it up for discussion with all of you. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, Seb, and take it away. Sarah, thanks very much, and it's a great pleasure to be in Washington to do this. And this, I think this is the third time we've been able to uh, partner with CSIS uh, to present the findings of the outlook, and it really is a great thrill um, uh, for us to do so. And we hope that this is an informative session and that we've done something that helps uh, all of you think about the future um, in a more detailed way. Uh, we've certainly had a lot of fun, uh, fun doing it. The, New Energy Outlook uh, has been now going since, in some form or, or another, since about 2009. I've been in charge of it for the last uh, six years, and it's really an exercise in drawing together many research streams from across uh, BNEF. And our research universe, if I can make that click forward, is uh, uh, a more varied place than it used to be. And the New Energy Outlook draws together our work across clean energy, transport, commodities, and even includes some chapters on digital technology, uh, metals and materials, and advanced materials that we think are influenced um, and affected by some of the transition that we're observing in the energy, and in particular the power sector. So we draw together people from around our firm, across these disciplines, about 65 people, takes about six months to do, um, and we do it bottom up by asking them to look at their countries and their expertise um, and, and, and what we end up with, these global conclusions sort of bubble up from there. So it really is a very much a team effort. Um, I get to be spokesperson uh, every now and again, uh, but we wouldn't be able to do this without a very large network of, of smart people thinking pretty hard about these topics. So the outlook is a scenario exercise. Um, like a lot of scenario exercises, you've got to understand how it's made to understand what it means. And so I'm going to spend a moment explaining what we do and why we do it that way. At its heart, it's a least cost optimization exercise. Um, we do it bottom up by country and we start thinking about demand and changes in demand, both on an annual basis, a seasonal basis, an intraday basis for the power sector. And then we model bottom up by country a least cost system that builds off what's already in the ground and the pipeline of activity we can see to meet demand at least cost. 
What we do is strip out policy as soon as policies have run their course. So that means that anything that's there today, net metering policies for small-scale PV or other renewable energy targets, for example, a lot of those are gone by the mid-2020s and we let a least cost system emerge based on the economics. And so what you see is not driven by policy or climate ambition um, or any other uh, sort of industry-based policy. It's really trying to let a least cost system uh, emerge. And every year we try and make it better. And last year I stood up and showed pretty much this slide and you can see that there's a number of topics here that we got smarter at last year uh, that we think are important for the future of energy. And this year uh, we did a lot of things. Um, perhaps most importantly we started to look at scenarios to electrify sectors of the economy as a pathway to decarbonisation and I'll finish with those scenarios today. But we did the world in a bit more detail and we covered a number of areas around coal and, and gas technology, the grid, um, commercial EVs, air conditioning um, and other topics to make it more complete. And we hope, we hope that being more complete means we've considered more of the dynamics and nuances that we all know are there when we think about the next uh, 30 years or so. Part of my job is to take all this work and to extract key messages and storylines that we think are important this year. And I've got 10 uh, key messages this year, and I'm gonna work through each of those uh, today in the session, and hopefully that spurs a lot of thought and discussion for the Q&A. The first is that we think that wind and solar get everywhere, 50% of generation by 2050. That's the same result as last year. The new piece here is that we think that's looking like it puts the power sector on track for a two degree uh, trajectory, just the power sector. We'll come back to that. A lot of money gets invested in generation, in batteries, in the grid. In terms of parts of the world that are undergoing this transition, Europe moves furthest, fastest. China, and coal, uh, China uh, with coal and US with gas play catch up. Renewables are cheap and that drives the whole outlook. Uh, and we'll spend a bit of time looking at the technology costs and the evolution of those. We can get to high penetration of renewable energy if we think about a more dynamic demand system, batteries, uh, and other flexibility in the system that helps integrate those renewables. There's a gas story, it's a growth story, but it's not a rapid growth story. There's a coal story, it's a story of decline, but not yet. And it's a story about consumers and the role that people and businesses are going to play uh, and increasingly have to play in the system of the future. And finally, those scenarios where we think you can reduce emissions in the economy by electrifying them, but there are challenges with that, especially if we want to take emissions down to a two degree trajectory in a more electrified energy sector. So let's start at the top. Here is a chart showing generation across the world uh, by technology, and we get to 48% wind and solar, almost 50%, we round up for the headline, but that's within the margins of error, I think. 48% wind or solar, 62% renewable, 31% fossil fuels. We're going from a world, really, where we're sort of two-thirds fossil fuels to two-thirds renewables. And you can see the transition between fuels over time. This is another transition. We've had the oil crisis, the growth of gas, the growth and decline of nuclear in its importance as part of the generation system. Coal has been a constant, but we think that's the technology that suffers most over this transition period. And that generation picture feeds about a 
increase in electricity demand, and that's met by almost a three-fold increase in the amount of capacity on the ground, about a 15 to 16-fold increase in the amount of PV, a six-fold increase in the amount of wind and the growth of batteries, demand response and other demand-side flexibility that helps balance that future system. And when we think about the emissions that this new world puts out for the power sector, we can draw a couple of curves. One is the scenario emissions for the power sector, NEO 2019, the blue line, and the other is the green line, which is a two degree trajectory for the power sector. Now there's lots of smoke and mirrors associated with constructing an emissions trajectory for a power sector from a global carbon budget. The way we do it is we say, well, every sector has to do its fair share, and some of you will quibble with that, but there's no perfect way to do this. But if the power sector does its fair share, the remaining carbon budget suggests that we could be, if this least cost system were to come to fruition, and again, it's not a prediction, it's a scenario, we could be on track to 2030 before we really need to ramp things up beyond a least cost pathway. I think that should give us some confidence, and it's a quite a positive spin on, we have a lot of the technologies today that are cost effective today to buy us time today to be on a much more climate safe pathway for the power sector. But if we want to hit a one and a half degree trajectory, this becomes a lot more difficult. The budget just gets really, really small. And these are precipitous drops in emissions that we would very much have to accelerate from where we are today um, in a pretty unprecedented manner. Let's talk a moment about money and the investment opportunity, because this is an investment opportunity for those who can uh, navigate this change. 13.3 trillion in new power generation, 800 plus billion in batteries, uh, and over 11 trillion in transmission and distribution. So of those 13.3 trillion, about over three quarters goes to renewable energy, 83% um, to zero carbon when you include hydro and nuclear. The bulk of that to wind and solar, um, so that uh, 9.5 billion, if you add another, uh, sorry, 9.5 trillion, if you add 800 billion, that number for batteries, we get to a, roughly around 10, 10 trillion. So maybe take away that number is wind, solar, batteries, 10 trillion uh, is a good takeaway. That activity is uh, centered in Asia Pacific. That's about 43% of investment and in, in new build uh, power generation between now and 2050, and in that part of the world, China is about 50% of that. So a lot of activity, as we might expect, from the fast-growing Asian economies. Uh, but everywhere, we see a lot of blue and a lot of yellow. And throughout this presentation, these colors will remain consistent. So blue is wind, yellow is PV, um, dark blue is hydro, red is nuclear, gray is gas, and black is coal. And, those, and variations and shades in those colors sometimes mean different variations in those technologies. One thing that does emerge is that we see almost two trillion invested by households and businesses, uh, which is a very new part of the electricity system. So if we add together the small scale PV and the small scale batteries, that gets to 1.95 trillion. And you can see that there's a, a reasonable fraction of the world that will be powered by uh, behind the meter generation. And a lot of batteries we think will sit behind the meter, uh, put, put in alongside PV uh, to help um, once the price is right, uh, to use more of the electricity that those systems uh, can generate. And in terms of the grid, we already spend upward of 300 uh, billion a year on the grid worldwide. That's about the same amount as we invest in new renewable energy capacity per year. Uh, and we see that number increasing, uh, but not dramatically. 
Uh, and it's a function of the money needs to be spent in the distribution and transmission system. We see growth in distribution relative to transmission, um, and we see a lot of replacement investment. Grids are generally, especially in developed countries, are old, and there's a lot of money needs to be invested in replacing old infrastructure. There is some new build associated with growth in population and demographic change, and also integrating renewables, which we think is about 30% of that new build number. So most of the investment in the grid over the next 30 years or so is to replace existing grid infrastructure. And that's, of course, a, um, a big number, adding up to 11.4 trillion over the period. So point number three, time to look a little bit about the country level differences because these numbers so far have been global and we do this country by country and they all have different stories because of their um, natural endowments and resources, the fuel prices they see, and their ambition. By 2050, we think that, uh, that Europe can get to 80% wind and solar generation, which is a very high number and way higher than anyone thought really was likely even a few years ago. In contrast, China and the US only get to around 50 and about 35% wind and solar. There's a big difference here, and the difference is not because the technologies are different or they're particularly different in price, it's because of what's currently in the ground and how hard it is to move that on in the absence of policy intervention to do so. So this is the picture for Europe. And Europe has a lot of wind generation by 2050. A bunch of PV, it's got nukes still running, it's got hydro running, some biomass and some gas. But what we see here is a picture where coal disappears from the mix by the late 2030s. One of the reasons for that is that Europe has a carbon price and right now that carbon price is over 20 euro a tonne. Um, the carbon price has not been so high over the last five years or so, but there's been fixes to that mechanism that have created the sense of scarcity that we think is able to be maintained. Uh, and with that, you start to see coal gas fuel switching. You see the growth in gas over the next period of time as coal comes out and gas ramps up. We also have a nuclear phase-out policy in some parts of Europe, in France and in Germany. And we have coal phase-out policies in the UK, in France, um, and now in Germany by 2038, uh, that have enough bipartisan support and, or legislative, legislative support that we've included those. And when that happens, we've created a heap of space for new technologies to play in. A heap of demand needs to be met by something new, and cheap wind, cheap solar starts to do a lot of that work uh, across the continent, uh, backed up and supported by hydro um, and gas and batteries, which don't appear here because this is just a generation chart. Now contrast that with the US, where we see a lot of gas. The US story is one where cheap gas means that once it's in place, it's cheap to run and difficult to displace. And I'll show you some of the numbers why we don't see more gas coming out in the US compared to what we see in Europe. But we see growth in renewables, particularly in PV uh, post-2030, when PV gets cheaper than wind on a, on a benchmark basis across the country, uh, and nuclear coming out coal coming out, as we've seen over the last number of years, we think that continues to happen um, as cheap gas just undercuts its economics on an ongoing basis. The final contrast is China. China sees about 15% growth in coal-fired generations to about 2027, uh, when it peaks, then comes off at about 2% a year. A lot of that is pipeline build. The Chinese uh, uh, coal power plant pipeline has diminished significantly in the last few years, but we still see build, and it is still 
relatively cheap to build and certainly the cheapest dispatchable technology. So we need some generation overnight or when renewables are unavailable, then coal is the cheapest option in China. But by the late 2020s, renewables start to undercut it, batteries start to look cost competitive, and we see a move towards a more renewables heavy electricity system. But in all these systems, it's about what's currently there or not there that facilitates deeper penetration in an economics-based assessment like this. So with Europe, lots of space, lots of renewables. In the US, lots of gas blocks further renewables development. And in China, lots of coal, at least to sort of 2030, blocks more rapid renewables development in that country. I included Canada by accident, uh, but you can see a lot of hydro in Canada. Um, and uh, that's for obvious reasons. Um, uh, that was from a presentation yesterday, but it's nice to see that we have a view for Canada, like many other of the smaller economies in the world, built bottom up in the same way, uh, and many of the same uh, dynamics playing out. What we, what we do know is when we look around the world is that everywhere electricity systems get less carbon intensive. So this is the CO2 per unit of energy out from electricity from now to 2050. That black line is the global average, OECD and non-OECD. And this gives us a clue that if we can electrify sectors of the economy, this is a good emissions reductions pathway, um, or has the potential to be a good emissions reductions pathway uh, everywhere in the world. <clears throat> so underlying the outlook is a technology story, and it's the story about manufacturing at scale, incremental innovation, and precipitous cost declines that uh, displace a lot of the conventional traditional energy sources that we're uh, familiar with. And this is maybe the most important data set in energy economics today, arguably. And it's the PV module experience curve. It shows the price of PV modules back to the space program to today. It shows an 85% reduction in the price since 2010. And that's a 28.5% learning rate, that black line through the centre, that describes a 28.5% reduction in price for every doubling of capacity. And we have 40 years of data showing that this is, there's something going on with this silicon-based life form that gives us some confidence, statistically, that this might continue on. And when we look at this bottom up, our analysts in, in Asia uh, look at the technology coming through the manufacturing facilities um, and can identify ongoing cost declines in line with this curve out to about 2025, and beyond that it gets harder to see. So we don't think this is going to come to a hard stop anytime soon, but it is a doubling um, uh, measure, and so this does asymptote because it gets harder and harder to double capacity, so cost declines do sort of slow over time. But we think PV comes down by another 63% uh, um, between now and 2050 and becomes really, really cheap pretty much everywhere. So even places without great sunshine start to see PV as looking competitive as we get towards the end of the outlook. Wind has a similar story. Um, wind turbine prices are down 49% um, since 2010. Um, we survey the market and get these prices on an ongoing basis throughout the year. So these are you know, the most up-to-date uh, numbers out there. But for wind, it's not just a unit cost, of course. The turbines are getting bigger, and we can see that. And turbines get bigger in the same way that uh, platforms for automotive uh, manufacturing change. So for a while, we'll have a platform, and that platform will get optimized, and then that platform will step up. And you can see the step sort of function for onshore and offshore. And the turbines get pretty big when you get offshore. 
Um, turbine size is important, but also wind turbines are getting better. We're getting more energy out for every unit of capacity deployed, su such that that um, uh, very special case, that onshore wind turbine in Texas running a 50% capacity factor looks more like the benchmark by the time we get to the end of this outlook rather than an exception. Overall, today, when we look around, um, look around the world, these technologies are getting cheap. And this is a chart showing the levelised cost of electricity. So this takes those technology costs, it thinks about the rest of the balance of plan of CapEx, OpEx, financing costs, puts them together on, the life, on a lifespan of the project and says, what would your offtake price need to be for you to make your minimum hurdle ra equity rate of return? And this is the picture we can paint. Now for the US, there's a lot of technologies here and they don't all do the same thing. So one of the criticisms that often gets leveled at levelised costs of electricity is that, yeah, but a wind turbine isn't always available, so you can't compare it directly with a gas plant or a coal plant. And the answer is, yes, you can't. That's exactly right. But it doesn't mean these relative prices don't mean anything. Because as we look at the different parts of this picture, each one of these sections does different things. We've got variable renewables providing bulk generation dispatchable capacity that may be in some cases more expensive but is available when required. Peaking capacity that's more expensive again but can ramp up quickly to help balance around peaks. And when we model this, we take all these technologies and we fill the gaps that emerge with the right technology, the least cost for the job at hand. But we can see here in the US that the best in class onshore wind and PV is cost competitive today with gas and certainly with coal. And if we look back five years, we could have said maybe 1% of the world's population lived in a place where PV and wind were the cheapest form of new electricity generation on a dollar per megawatt hour basis. And today, that's about two thirds of the world population live in a place where PV and wind are the cheapest form of new generation. And that's a very short amount of time for a lot of change in the economics of this. And if we think of those cost curves and how we expect them to continue, then this story only gets stronger and it's natural to conclude that this stuff is probably going to get everywhere if we were interested in building a least cost system. This is called tipping point one in our parlance, which is basically when is it cheaper to build these new technologies than to build the old technologies brand new. But there's also a second tipping point, is when does it get cheaper to build the new technologies following these steep experience curves than it is to run an existing commissioned coal or gas plant. And these charts are pretty revealing. This is the US and China. So by the late 2020s, we think it gets cheaper to build uh, wind and PV in the US than to, start to run a benchmark CCGT gas plant for the hours in which it can be displaced. In China, that story's a little earlier with coal, but in a place like the US with cheap gas and China with relatively cheap coal, we're talking about the 2025 to 2030 period when these technologies start to disrupt what's already in the ground, not just the new build pipeline. In Germany, you see the, the coal um, and gas prices moving around with carbon pricing a lot there, but again, certainly with wind by 2030, PV happens a little bit later. And in India, where we have really cheap fuel, it can be really hard to displace. And India's mine mouth coal-fired power stations are very hard to displace, even with these steep cost declines in wind and solar technology. And as such, we don't have coal generation peaking in India until 2038 in this outlook.
So when we're talking about a system that gets to 80% wind and solar, the natural question is, well, how does that possibly balance? Because there are times when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And one of the important pieces of that story is batteries. They can't do everything, but once they are a bit cheaper, we think they can do a lot. And the good news is they're getting cheaper rapidly. They've come down in price the same as PV since 2010, 85%. And we expect them to come down another 65% by 2050 on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. And something that gives us confidence that that cost curve can continue is that this is, again, a manufacturing industry. And that manufacturing industry is growing dramatically. And over the next five years or so, we think it more than triples. And with that scale and that competition around the world, we expect costs to be forced down um, like they have in other sectors. And batteries are more complicated. They've got more complicated chemistries. They're not PV. Uh, and so it's still uh, a big question for us is that how far can the current set of chemistries and technologies take us? And we actually flatline these costs beyond uh, about 2035, I think, just because we can't necessarily see from the technologies that we know about how that can continue on. But certainly over the next 10 years or so, this is going to drive cost declines in line with what we've already seen for batteries. And similarly, we can draw these tipping points for batteries. So in the outlook, we identify two main uses for batteries. Now, we know that there's many uses for batteries. You can use batteries in an electricity network to uh, delay investment in transmission distribution infrastructure. Um, you can use them to help balance frequency and other sort of short-term uh, applications. And, and most of the batteries deployed today draw on these sorts of revenue streams to do that. But if we think about the role of batteries in helping to balance variability on the, on the generation side, we need to think about dispatchability. How good are batteries at actually taking hours of generation and moving them around intraday? So for a four-hour battery, we look at the role of it, it might play in dispatchability. New versus new. When does it get cheaper to put a battery in place for four hours than to build a gas plant or a coal plant to meet that dispatchability requirement, to meet those hours when renewables aren't available? And the answer is today, it's much more expensive to put a battery in place. But by 2030, we think that batteries like this are, with just this revenue stream, look as good as building new thermal plants to meet those times of the day when renewables aren't available. And so when you see these crossovers, we start to see batteries get deployed with renewables more and more, eating into the run out, eating into the, the market opportunity for new build coal and gas. There is a second tipping point when it gets cheaper to build these batteries to displace what's already been commissioned in the ground. And that's a much harder story. So for Australia, where gas is relatively expensive because of the export market and coal is very cheap, we see batteries crossing with gas for, for the sort of dispatchability role, but never crossing coal, cheap coal in Australia. And in the UK, we get really high penetrations of renewables because you can see that batteries start to look competitive with gas in a post-coal environment for this dispatchability. So more hours of gas generation can be displaced, um, or potential gas generation can be displaced by batteries. So that's one part of the batteries equation. The other part is their role in meeting peaks. And when we think about meeting peaks, what we're interested in is essentially the capex, because these plants don't run for very long. They don't have a lot of fuel to pay for, but they need to be in the ground and available. So it's really a capex question. And when we look at that, we can see today that a one-hour battery to shave a sharp peak 
in a, in a load profile looks competitive with a new combined cycle gas plant in the US, but not a peaker gas plant. But moving forward to 2030, those cost declines in batteries means that not just one hour, but a four hour battery looks better than building a peaker gas plant. So we start to see batteries displace the role of peaker gas plants um, over time but only up to about four hours. And that residual peak when you net off the renewables generation that you have to meet, if it's longer than four hours, so overnight, for example, it can still be more competitive to put a gas plant in place to meet those overnight peaks uh, than it can use a battery. And we think about that second tipping point, new batteries on existing uh, capacity, that looks a very long way away. So once something's in, in place, it tends to run, something a gas plant tends to run in the US for for generation and for peaking, and that's why we have all that gas in that outlook for, for the US. Once it's in place, it tends to run because the gas is cheap enough that batteries take too long to get competitive in the absence of any uh, policy driver to push them in earlier. The other thing that helps balance variable renewables is electric vehicles. So a month ago, we published our 2019 electric vehicle outlook. It's a global assessment of where we see electric vehicles um, penetrating across different vehicle classes from light duty road vehicles to commercial and heavy transport uh, vehicles, buses. Um, the only thing we don't cover is uh, two wheelers actually, but next year. And what this paints is a picture where we have 57% of new vehicle sales in 2040, we think, have a battery, and that's about a third of the cars on the road. And those cars all have batteries, and all those batteries need to charge. And so what we think about in the outlook is how will they charge, not just the amount they will charge. Because in terms of amount, globally, that's 9% of electricity demand in 2050. In the UK, it's about 24%, it's a really big number. In this part of the world, it's about 16%. So it varies greatly down to India, which is about 3%. So electric vehicles penetrate at very different rates in different countries. But when they charge matters as much as how much they charge. And like last year, for those who uh, remember the presentation, we use a, um, an approach to charging that keeps some of that charging fixed and dumb, where people get home from their day, plug in, and they charge, and some of that charging dynamic. We know that cars are stationary for 90 plus percent of their lives. If they can be plugged in during that time, a big if, either at home or at a place of work or somewhere, then we think that increasingly those cars are going to be able to charge dynamically, i.e. when the price is right, when we have abundance of, of, of cheap, renewable in particular energy, zero marginal cost energy flowing into the system. Which means that even somewhere like the UK, a lot of electric vehicles, but by 2050 we start to see the demand profile changing shape to reflect when cheap PV is running on this day. Even in the UK, which doesn't have great sun, as I mentioned before. And we think that's necessary because electric vehicles are a consumer uptake exercise. People are making decisions to buy electric vehicles based on their cost, but also based on the penetration effects, the imitation that we all do when we see someone we know with something, and if the price is right, we might get it too. We all have iPhones in our pockets, and none of us have done a cost-benefit analysis of that. Um, and, and as I say, I think, for me anyway, if I had ever done that, I would probably wouldn't have one, because I waste far too much time on it. But in the same way is that people copy each other, we know that. And we can see that clumping. When you look at small-scale PV uptake in California, you can see the clumps by postcode of people copying each other 
once their neighbours have done it. And because of that, you really couldn't have a system where people got home in a neighbourhood and all plugged in around the same time would put tremendous strain on the distribution grid. And we're already seeing dynamic EV tariffs being offered by certain retailers uh, around the world to help manage that demand across the day better. So EVs, we think, can, can help integrate more renewables. And a great example um, of how this plays out is somewhere like Australia, uh, where there's a lot of PV, and whether it's EVs or other dynamic loads, so time of use, demand response, we can see the load profile start to, sh to shape to accommodate it. So this is 2020. All that yellow is small-scale PV in Australia, pretty much. There's no large-scale plants. Um, I think there's one or two commissioned now, but uh, the, until very recently, this was all rooftop. And this is the load profile on an average summer's day in 2020. By 2030, we see the load profile starting to reflect the PV generation. And by 2040, it's, it's being reshaped. So if more of the load can move to when the generation is available, we can integrate more renewables. So how does this all fit together? Thinking about dynamic loads, thinking about batteries, and thinking about, in many ways, some of the uh, peaker facilities, which I haven't talked about yet, peaker gas plants, um, technologies that can ramp up um, to meet demand when needed. We can paint a picture of how demand might be met on a spring day, and it's not any particular spring day, it's a spring day we plucked out of the modelling, and this is for Iberia mostly Spain. And in 2020, we can see the nuclear power stations are running on this day. Dispatchable generation, which is coal and gas, is running on this day. Wind is running. Solar is running. We've even got some batteries charging and discharging uh, around, the, uh, around the fringe. If we move forward in time, we start to see renewables generation pick up. More of the day is being met by renewables, such that by 2030, we've got, in the middle of the day, a little bit of nuclear still running, a bit of gas still running, but a lot of wind and solar. And by the time we get up to 2050, the nuclear power stations have retired. There is still gas running, but very little gas is running for most of the day. Wind is running, solar is running, but the big feature is that purple lump at the top, and that is unused electricity, curtailment. In other words, We've got more capacity in Spain on this day from wind and PV than we generally know what to do with. And one, this is an opportunity for export, potentially. But mostly, it's a system that's running pretty suboptimally. And not only is this one day of high curtailment of renewables, but we know we can get weeks of this stuff when renewables are just pumping out. This is a high renewables week in 2035. There's a lot of wind here. A little bit of dispatchable capacity running along the bottom, a bit of nuclear still running in 2035 in Spain. We get weeks of this. And the only way this makes any sense is because at the same year where we get weeks of this, we get weeks of this. And this is a low renewables week, unlike what the title of the chart says. And what you can see here is you've still got a lot of renewables running because you've got a lot of capacity in the ground. So even if they're running at low capacity factor, you're still getting quite a lot of generation. But you see these mountains of grey that emerge. And these mountains of grey that come in overnight are backup. That's the dispatchable capacity that's needed in low renewables periods. 
And we think this can still construct the least cost system because what we're mapping is on one extreme, low renewables periods where we need backup and need something dispatchable. In this case, it would be gas. And on the other extreme, we have high renewables periods that, where we have too much, but a lot of the year sits in the middle somewhere. And if renewable gets, renewables get cheap enough, then they can run suboptimally, not at their optimal capacity factor, and that can still make sense. And I think the reason why people get anxious about that is that historically these technologies were more expensive, so you had to run them at their optimal so that the economics could make sense. But when they get really cheap, we think that can work. We don't demand that a coal-fired power station runs at 85% capacity factor. And in fact, we see coal and gas plants running well below where they would like to be running if they could in the systems around the world today. And if we think about this on a yearly basis, you can really see the volatility that emerges, which creates a huge set of questions about how this system might be paid for um, and how the investment might flow to build the outlook um, as we envisage it. This is 2020, a year for Iberia. So you can see the seasonality here, um, summer in the middle. As you move forward in time, you can start to see the purple spikes, and this is when we need uh, a curtailment of renewables, but also the grey mountains at the bottom when we have backup ramping up. And over time, we get more purple and less grey, but there are still periods where we need quite a lot of backup. And these periods can happen the day after we had a lot of renewables. So the switch from a high renewables day to a low renewables day can happen on a 24-hour basis, which means that we have a much more volatile system. This is a challenge for price formation. It's certainly a challenge for investors who are relying in a lot of these cases, especially for these, um, these dispatchable uh, plant, on those, uh, on those days when they can get a peak price because they're very valuable to the system. And on other days, they're barely running. It's a much harder investment case. But this, we think, is a least cost system because wind and solar are not badly behaved thermal coal plants or gas plants. They're very different and they behave in a much more variable manner. And that means that we need to be much smarter about how we integrate them, but we think they can go to pretty high penetration. So the story for gas that emerges is much more of a niche story in most parts of the world. The US is a bit of an anomaly. In most parts of the world, gas is more expensive than coal and more expensive than renewables and gets squeezed by both. And when it gets squeezed by both, it finds its niche role providing backup. This is not a great story for molecule sellers because it's not a lot of gas burn, but it's maybe a great story for people who own gas plants providing electricity because they are very valuable to the system. And to, to illustrate what we mean when we say this niche area of providing backup, you can already see in lots of parts of the world that gas plants are running well below their optimal utilisation for combined cycle, down at 20 and 30%. A lot of that's due to overcapacity. For India, it's about gas availability. There's lots of reasons. But we, don't, we can see that gas plants can operate down at this level, but they need to get paid because they're running less hours. So the price they demand to stay online and run those hours needs to be higher. And overall, this is a picture we see for gas in terms of capacity growth, quite a lot of growth in capacity. A lot of that is peaker plants, but a lot of that capacity is running less. It's needed to be there, but it doesn't run as much. And every hour that a wind or a solar plant can run, it does. And overall, this is a growth in fuel burn, partly because demand is growing everywhere. When demand grows everywhere, electricity from gas grows as well. Um, and part of it is to do with transitions in big economies uh, here like the US where we see a lot more gas burn over the next 30 years. For coal, the story is 
different. This is the one chart I have on coal I think tells the story best, and that is growth in Asia out to about 2030 and then decline. For Europe, we see, uh, I think about 97% reduction in the use of coal out to 20, uh, 2050. Um, for the US, that's over 80%. And for the Asian economies, we see growth as coal is the cheapest new generation, particularly for dispatchability. But ultimately, when we hit those peaks, it comes out quite quickly. It comes out quite quickly because renewables get cheaper, because batteries get cheaper, and more of that coal generation can be met with other technologies that have a cheaper system, uh, overall system cost. One of the features of the system we're describing is that it gets a lot more decentralized. And it gets decentralized for two reasons. One is that there's households and businesses that are increasingly playing an active role and putting PV and later PV and batteries in place to help manage their costs. And the other reason is because renewable energy is by its very nature smaller and more distributed. So the first part of that equation is behind the meter capacity. So between 10 and say, let's say 10, let's exclude Australia, 10 and 30% of capacity in major economies is behind the meter by 2050. And that's a big new thing. And it's a great opportunity for utilities and people seeking, uh, trying to find value with, con with consumers, but uh, it does mean that a lot more demand is met behind the meter than in front of the meter uh, of the demand increases that we see around the world. Australia is a pretty special case. It gets a very high penetration, and it does that um, on the back of consumer uptake. There's already uh, one in four households in Australia has PV. Um, and that's mostly because retail prices got really expensive, and everyone tried to hedge against impending um, insolvency as a result of their power prices. Um, and uh, we can talk about Australia if you like, but it's a, it's a bit of an outlier case. But 10 to 30% behind the meter, that's batteries, PV, and demand response. But more generally, the scale of power plants changes. This is the EU in 2015. The medium power plant is almost a gigawatt in size. Coal, gas, nuclear, hydro. If we move forward in time, we can see that purple dotted line, which is the median, we can see it move to the left. 2020, 2025, 2030, 35, 40, 50. By 2050, at the end of the outlook, the average size of a power plant in Europe is under 100 megawatts. There are some which are in the kilowatt range on rooftops. You've still got some large-scale nuclear plants, some large-scale large hydro, some big offshore wind plants running. But the onshore wind and the utility-scale PV are much smaller. And a lot of these plants today are connected to the distribution grid. And this says to us that over time, as you have more of these technologies, the role of the distribution system gets more important, and the need to balance at a more local level gets more important. This isn't the case everywhere in the same way. So Europe is, 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 the, is the front runner in terms of wind and solar penetration, so we see this more extreme picture. In the US, we have large-scale gas plants. This, this story is less pronounced. In China, where we have large coal plants and nuclear plants, this story is less pronounced. But there is this shift towards the distribution network. And this is an active discussion in Europe right now about how to, on a distribution level, optimize the deployment of, of renewable technologies without breaking the grid um, at least cost and the role of the distribution system operators um, in helping to do that. 
So finally, we ran some scenarios. And the first was this question of, well, if you electrify something, is that a good path to decarbonisation? And the answer is yes, but you have some scale problems that we wanted to highlight. What we did in this exercise was we said, what if we electrified all of residential space heating, residential heating, that includes cooking, but residential heating, and electrified the rest of road transport? So it's a partial analysis. We're not worried about industrial heat or aviation emissions or anything like that. But what if we electrified a couple of the major parts of heat and transport that we can see some electrical pathway for? And the answer is, well, the system needs to be bigger. That's pretty obvious. We need more generation, more capacity. And you can see that the, the mix of capacity in that system by 2050 is sort of more of the same. We're still seeing a lot of renewables, a little bit more offshore wind, actually, um, and a bit more gas. But where this gets really interesting is not so much the amount of extra electricity generation you need, but, but how that electricity generation comes, uh, comes to market. And these are charts that show the challenges of electrifying heat in particular. As I said before, electric vehicles, if you can dynamically charge them, a lot, of, a lot of the time they can help smooth out the profile. They actually help integrate more renewables, and actually that's a story where renewables and electric vehicles are all kind of a nice coupled uh, sector mix that can, can make this, the whole system look lower carbon. But heating is different. Heating is different because people heat on a needs basis. Buildings are not terribly energy efficient. It's very hard to say, well, I'm going to run my heating at home in the middle of the day when we've got lots of renewables running. Uh, and when I get home, the house is still going to be warm. Most of us live in leaky old buildings where the house is not warm. And actually what happens is we turn the heating on at the beginning and the end of the day. On a cold day, and this is for the UK in 2040, not the coldest day, but a cold day in the UK in 2040, we create a Bactrim camel out of our, 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 our profile. We have a huge amount of new electricity demand at the fringes of what PV can do. And that puts a huge extra demand on the gas in the system. And you can see on the right-hand side, you can see wind is running. In the UK, you have a lot of offshore wind. Uh, with PV is running. Batteries are doing their darndest. But actually, what's happening here is you've got peak of gas ramping up like crazy. That's a doubling, in this example, in 2040, that's a, over a doubling of peak load on that day to electrify heat with heat pumps. So one of the conclusions is this might be a terrible way of decarbonizing heat, uh, just because of the nature of the demand profile, even if, on an emissions basis, this is not a bad idea. Because when we look at those sectors of transport and heating, and their business as usual trajectory, which is upward, that's an IEA number we use for those, and then we electrify those, taking the emissions from the electricity generation, trading sort of scope one for scope two, we can see a, a, a good saving, 126 gigatons of emission saving. So this is lower emissions across the whole economy, higher emissions in the electricity sector because we've got to do more and we've got to burn more gas and more coal. So the second scenario we ran was, well, what if we wanted to decarbonize that more electrified energy system to a two-degree trajectory. In other words, what if we wanted to take that purple line and bring it down to the green line? What would we have to do? And the first part of the answer is, well, this is certainly no longer least cost, but we could ramp up renewables. 150% increase in the amount 
um, of renewable generation across the world, a lot of offshore wind, got a really flat generation profile, costs becomes sort of not an object here. We've got an emissions constraint to meet. But even then, with the coal coming out rapidly, switching to gas initially, then the gas coming out, we have a problem, which is there's still a deficit. There's a seasonal deficit for those winter heating requirements. And it's a reasonably sized one, not initially, but by 2050, it's about half the amount of electricity generated today worldwide, which is a fair market opportunity if you're developing technologies that could be dispatchable, available. And there are a lot of those, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. But this is a picture that says we need a phase two decarbonisation technology. We need something beyond the wind solar battery story if we're going to decarbonise by electrifying across numbers of sectors in the economy. And we can also think about what that technology might look like. This is a chart that shows the net load for the UK again, is, is our example in this, in this scenario here. And the dotted lines, the 2019, 2030, 2050, are the net load of renewables for the UK in our Neo 2019 scenario, our, our central uh, analysis. If we ramp up the amount of renewables for this two degree target in this electrified scenario, we get more. So the green line is the ramifications of that. We have more renewables running. The gap to target gets smaller. But it's still there. And you can see the shape of it. The x-axis is the amount of hours running in the year. So we need something that doesn't run that often. But when it does run, it may have to run at very high capacity. We need a lot of power in the system. So something that runs at low capacity factor and can ramp up to meet these sort of peaks starts to narrow the field of the technologies that might be candidates. And what we've done is we've put on a chart the LCOE of a set of phase two technologies. So technologies that are out of the money today that don't feature heavily in the outlook because they're just not cost effective compared to the wind and solar and batteries and those manufacturing industries that we described. But as a function of capacity factor, so what looks cheap when it's not running very much and is zero carbon? And this is the picture we start to paint. And this is not an answer. This is an input to people's thinking because this, there is no candidate here that stands out. But based on the costs that we can get out of the market, a lot of these technologies are in pilot phase. Some of them have huge supply side constraints. Um, others just do not fit well at low capacity factor and probably can't even run anything like that low. Nuclear, for example, that's large scale nuclear. But we start to see the solution space, something that doesn't run very often but can ramp up. And we know that people are enthusiastic in certain parts of the world about the role of solar, solar thermal can play, but it's got to be sunny. We know people are enthusiastic about the role that CCS could play, but we've got to find a price signal and get beyond pilot scale. We know the Europeans are excited about biogas, but again, you've got a, a supply side constraint. Biogas comes out of waste sites and other things that it's hard to scale up to the, to the, the size we might need. And we know people are excited about hydrogen, but green hydrogen is still relatively expensive. We've got a big report coming out in the second half of the year on that to understand the hydrogen economy and the ramifications and what role hydrogen might play. But right now, this is a solution space that doesn't have a natural winner. And I think that governments ultimately probably need to think about two things. One is that we think we can get to these high penetration renewable systems, but the rules have got to be right and the way has got to get cleared. It won't just happen by accident. And secondly, if we want to decarbonise sectors of the economy with electricity, we're going to have to think about 
these sorts of technologies or something completely different, but there's a whole bunch of R&D and there's an R&D story here that says we need to find the demand signals, get the costs down if we want to get to a two degree trajectory and beyond that net zero emissions. And, and just overnight, the uh, UK House of Commons, to keep on the UK theme here, uh, passed um, uh, its net zero by 2050, um, uh, I'm gonna say recommendation, because it, it amends an existing piece of climate change legislation that goes to the House of Lords in uh, uh, soon. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly when. So there is a movement in this direction, but it's gonna need a new generation of technologies to get there beyond what we can see today. So that's, that's it for the outlook uh, this year. I hope it's a really interesting document. It's 59% longer in word count. Uh, <laughs> it almost killed us in, a, in an extra special way this year to get it done. And uh, um, it covers many more areas that we've had questions on from this audience and others in the past. I uh, encourage you to have a look at it, to read it, send us questions, and we uh, hope to make it uh, even, maybe not bigger, but certainly uh, better next year. Thanks very much. <laughs> All right, thanks, Seb. That was uh, an amazingly large amount of information, but, uh, but I think you're right. I think you did actually address some of the issues that are foremost on people's minds, particularly about sort of deeper decarbonization scenarios. Uh, but then also one that I want to just pick on and then I want to open it up so we have plenty of time to talk with our colleagues in the audience about these things. Um, Okay, the role of the grid, you mentioned it in a number of different ways in this outlook, but I just want to go back to sort of the basics, which is a lot of times these types of outlooks can get criticized because they look at the cost of capacity, right? They look at the, the generation capacity cost and they don't look at total systems cost necessarily. They don't look at what are increasingly either political um, or economic challenges with regard to incorporating higher and higher penetration of renewables, either on the transmission or the distribution side. So could you just give us your sort of takeaway thoughts about whether or not um, transmission and, uh, and distribution costs associated with higher penetration of renewables is a blockage in either your core scenario or in some of your deeper decarbonization scenarios that you looked at? Sure. Uh, so I think with any scenario exercise, the question everyone should be asking is, you know, what do you have to believe for this to come true? Um, and once we ask that question, we start to find that there are a lot of things that we need to believe and that while this is a least cost exercise, optimised, it assumes a whole set of things. Um, it assumes that policymakers allow least cost technologies to come forth and there's lots of regulations in place today that mean that batteries can't do what we're describing in certain markets. Um, uh, you know, we, if seeing a situation somewhere like uh, Australia, where I'm from, where the market operator is actively moving at the moment from 25-minute settlement to five-minute settlement to help integrate more variability and fast response of these technologies. So there's all sorts of things that we have to see happen on a, on a regulatory basis and a policy basis to facilitate this, even if we're not driving the solution with these, these policies. One of, the, one of those is the way that we invest in the grid. And the, what we assume is that of that 300 to 350 billion spent every year, that it is invested in a way that helps to facilitate the outlook that we've described because we think it's least cost on generation. Um, and uh, that means that, especially at a distribution level, we are describing investment and foresight that preemptively, we 
assume, um, considers bottleneck issues around the deployment of these technologies um, and optimization within the grid so that it's not possible just to build blindly and dumbly because the LCOE looks good, that you're going to have to build in a way spatially to help integrate that and to, and to, and to relieve pressure on the, on the grid. And we assume that that happens. And we already see places where you can't build, um, and again, I'm sorry to keep using the UK as an example, but uh, the UK, you know, there's all these PV plants in Cornwall and Devon, and it's, well, that's the best sunshine, but you've got a problem getting it up to the main demand centres. I mean, obvious things like that. Um, so we don't model spatially, so we can't really optimise spatially. Uh, the investment numbers we saw in the grid, that is essentially for, for meterage, that's for the size of the grid. And we make some assumptions about how you need to expand the grid to accommodate more generating capacity, especially more at a distribution level. So the distribution grid you know, does get bigger relative to the transmission grid. Um, uh, but uh, there is likely to be other investments required in the grid beyond just the length of it in terms of integrating more intelligently. That is not captured in these numbers. So in some ways, we may be underestimating the amount of investment from that angle. Equally though, and we talk about this in the outlook, it's not clear that this is all additive. In the same way as we may have more investment than what we're painting in the distribution grid, but it may mean that we have less in the transmission grid because actually a lot of the balancing and a lot of the sort of dynamics of the system are being solved and managed at a, at a more local level and therefore the expectation of what the transmission grid does is less about transmission and more about interconnectivity. Mm -hmm. We don't know the answer to those numbers, um, but we do say that it's not clear this is all just more and more cost. And we don't at the moment say that uh, the grid is any impediment to the build out of these renewables provided it's done in this smart way. You mentioned also just uh, about uh, the political nature of this. And one of the things that, uh, you know, there's not all these technologies are loved, and, and for different reasons. And I think one of the things that, that we, we, because we build at least cost, what we don't take into account is the fact that onshore wind in certain parts of the world is not loved, and it's not loved um, at high density. Uh, and we know that wind is good on the coasts and people get upset when wind turbines are built in their coastal views and they don't like living underneath them and that's obvious. These are huge pieces of equipment. Uh, so it's very possible that we start to see less something like offshore wind in reality and we need to run some scenarios really to look at like what if you, if you stop building offshore wind, what happens? Well, in different parts of the world, different things would happen, uh, but the next least cost technology would get built, and normally, certainly beyond 2025, um, that's going to be you know, a combination of PV or offshore wind. So you might get a mix in the technologies based around the politics, but it's not clear to us that the politics uh, can stop the transition we're talking about. They can certainly slow it down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, thanks, that's really helpful. One more question, just to make sure I understand the function of your tipping point number two and the way it relates to gas in the US. You have a very bold vision for gas build out in the US uh, in the electric power sector, which I, I haven't compared to any other forecasts, but doesn't look you know, untoward. Um, but you do say the late 2020s, uh, it gets cheaper to build PV and wind than run existing CGT in the US. And yet you have a massive gas build out that continues through sort of 2050. 
Does that just mean we're running gas plants that are less economical to be running, but we just do it anyway? Which is, I mean, we're doing that with coal in some parts of the country now. So is that, but is that generally what you're saying about what the U.S. electric power sector is going to be doing, or have I missed something? No, it's a tricky one, actually. And we've been looking at... Sorry, I'm a novice with these microphones. <laughs> uh, we've been looking at the US results to, uh, to try and understand why gas gets so stuck here. Um, it certainly builds out in the near term because you're having coal come out and you need something that looks a bit like coal because batteries are too expensive and we've got renewables being built out as well, but everything's being built out. There's this deficit of capacity. And once it's in place, it tends to stick around. Um, the question of like, why don't we see more of it come out by in, the, in the longer term is mostly a function of, of gas prices and where in the country this is happening. So when we try and aggregate up to the US, we, we model the US in 13, in 13 ISOs, mm -hmm. and then we aggregate it up. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in that detail, we're seeing gas look really, really strong, and particularly in some of the, the, the faster growing parts of the US. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the, the averages and look at the, 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 the national-wide numbers, we start to see some of these tipping points that don't play out like that quite so cleanly in the, in the, in the final results. I think that's the main thing. The other thing is that gas is, um, you know, gas is cheap in the US, and so you know, we, we don't, for the hours that we see elsewhere, that renewables chip into it. So renewables get to high penetration because they can increasingly run at hours that they're not naturally available, and we don't see that in the US because gas is too cheap for batteries, and that's that. That, that tipping point with batteries happens in other places on a new build basis. So we end up having to build gas for those marginal um, uh, uh, dispatchability requirements. And once it's there, it's hard to displace. Okay, I know there's going to be a lot of questions. Uh, we've got a lot of expertise in the audience. If you could just wait for the microphone, uh, say your name and affiliation question in the form of a question, and we'll try and get in as many questions as possible. So please raise your hand if you have a question. We'll start here. Uh, Michael Greco, I'm a research intern at the Center for the National Interest. So in uh, your outlook uh, by 2050, uh, you said that nuclear was going to be phased out for the most part, especially in Europe. Um, and I assume that's probably because of uh, fears over meltdowns. But does this consider uh, the um, new direction that uh, China, India, and uh, some um, some parts of the energy sector in the U.S. are taking towards thorium uh, reactors and uh, molten salt breeder reactors. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so nuclear, um, there are certain parts of the world today where nuclear is competitive relatively. So in China, we see nuclear build because it's not that expensive. It's like 58, you know, 58, $60 a megawatt hour. That's competitive with other sources and despite the state sort of led build-out regimes, you know, that's, that's a competitive thing. We don't see nuclear, large-scale nuclear being built anywhere else in the world uh, other than where we've got Russian technology exported to the Middle East. So there's the Middle East and China as sort of the growth. And other than that, nowhere in, in, in sort of the OECD is nuclear particularly competitive. And so we don't see a lot of it. And so you get a combination of age, pulling out nuclear plants, and there's the odd phase-out policy around the place. And that is in response still. The German one in particular is in response to uh, the Fukushima disaster. A um, lot of arguments about whether that's a very sensible idea or not. Uh, but that's what is still in place. 
And in France, it's a diversification exercise, really, where we see like large nuclear. And in, and in the UK, it's really, they're not finding it hard to find the price points to build new ones as the old ones get too old. So there is, a, there is an argument to say that nuclear is such a strategic industry for nuclear states that on the power generation and the nuclear weapons side are all part of the same and complex, and therefore it's inconceivable that we wouldn't have a continued nuclear build-out and presence for, that, for those reasons. We don't take that into account. Um, and uh, again, it's a scenario really, rather than a least cost scenario. So, so in reality, we may see more nuclear here in Europe for those sorts of reasons. Um, in terms of new technologies, we're very careful not to include technologies that we can't see cost curves for. So all routes to scale. So we can identify today a cost, and that last slide I showed had costs of a set of technologies. So that's a, to create that chart, what we've done is we have an LCOE and then we've ramped down the, uh, we've made it vary as a function of capacity factor. It gives you those curves. Um, and so we have a view of cost of a lot of technology today, but to include it in here, we have to have a sense of how costs might change over time. Otherwise, it's one of a number of technologies that may play a really big role, may be significant, but we can't see the scale. And if we can't see the scale, we can't have confidence that it's going to get cheaper because everybody's technology is going to get cheaper and only some of them do. And, that, and so, the, so the thorium and all the other sort of next phase nuclear modular reactors, et cetera, uh, could play a major role, but at the moment are too far away from commercialization and scale to, to, to feature in the outlook. Thank you. Uh, Mark Finley. Uh, Seb, thank you for a very interesting uh, presentation. And, um, I'm really interested in thinking more about the variability that you mentioned. And you kind of mentioned in passing that, you know, kind of the, this more extreme variability of dispatch and pricing uh, could present challenges for investors. I mean, could you elaborate a bit more on that? I mean, how much more variable compared to what we see already in markets today? And what might the issues be for policymakers, for consumers, as well as for investors, and how to work through those? Thank you. Sure. I mean, one of, the, one of the big discussion points in the final chapter of the outlook is on policy ramifications. And the major part of that is about uh, price, signal, uh, price formation and not just in terms of remunerating the existing fleet of generators, both zero marginal cost and non-zero marginal cost, but also in the future, how does the system need to evolve uh, from price formation perspective to enable people to make the investments. Uh, and it's a very un, incon, inconclusive area, and a lot of people are talking about it. It's a big deal, again, in Europe, uh, where we're already seeing a situation, and um, once again, I'm going to use the UK because it's, uh, it's managed to get itself out in front of some of this because it got rid of its uh, coal-fired power stations very quickly with a carbon price floor. Um, and as a result of the amount of renewable generation that was coming in, coming in uh, and the uncertain uh, generation uh, outlook for gas, they couldn't get anyone to invest in gas plants, so they put a capacity mechanism in place. So we're already seeing this start to play out in different places where we need new capacity and no one knows quite how to invest. Uh, so government's coming in with extra sort of handouts and price signals and things, which is a bit of a hodgepodge to try and get the investment um, to, to manage security of supply. What we, what we 
What we know is that from an investment perspective, it's very hard for a, a project finance to look at the revenues of a power plant and know that most of the time it's not getting paid. And every now and again it needs to get paid a lot. So on the, that picture where we saw all the, the purple spikes at the top and the grey spikes at the bottom, that's a picture that says that for a lot of the year there's no, none of the renewables are getting paid because there's too much electricity on the grid and they run for, essentially for free. And in other parts of the year when they're not available um, uh, and the gas plants say ramping up, they, they're, 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 they need to get paid because most of the time they're not running. And so you ended up you're paying more for capacity than you are for generation in this, in this case. And so there's a lot of thinking about how that might play out. And for the investment community, finding a firm price signal is sort of central. And where we've seen this done well is where, so far, is either in the introduction of mechanisms that pay for capacity or through corporate PPAs, particularly here in the US, we've seen a lot of those um, that are firm price signals that can give, that make projects bankable because you've got an off-taker who's willing to pay irrespective of what the, um, the, the market might be doing at any one, any one point in time. So you're kind of imagining a system where there's lots of these bilateral contracts and the market sort of just at the, at the, you know, at the margin um, solves for demand with some of the more extreme, um, in the more extreme conditions. Um, so that missing money problem, you can see it in the numbers for, for, for gas plants around the world already today. In certain parts, you can see it for renewables, certainly in an outlook perspective. Um, and renewables tend to cannibalise their own price signals, so they're all run at the same time, especially PV. So when it's running, you know, they are maybe, um, there's going to be periods of time where existing projects see, well, see less and less revenue in those times, and new build projects don't see the price signals to come online. So I think that that's uh, the market design question. And in the interim, we've seen some of these PPA, PPAs sort of emerge as a way to sort of smooth that over. Um, but whenever there is security of supply problems, governments tend to step in and solve that because electricity still is a public good, even if it's privatised. Um, and then the lights go out, governments change. And so the, the challenge is to really uh, to get out in front of that and proactively put policy in place before know, before disaster strikes um, or things get really tight and risk goes up in terms of you know, security of supply. Uh, we're just happening at different times in different places around the world. It's a really complicated topic and that's one of the best short answers to that question I've ever heard. So uh, just kudos. I'm going to start taking them in groups. Uh, so we'll do these two and Bill. So Janie, the gentleman right here in the striped shirt or plaid shirt, sorry. <laughs> a lot of shirt comments. Is it on? Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, David Little with uh, HC Media. My question is dealing with coal prices in the future as more plants change over to natural gas and stop using coal. Won't the coal price generally go down with less demand? And that, how will that affect India since India is still building coal power plants and has plans, I know, to do, I think, 10 more? So, um, how do you, did you, um, also plus their population is going to be the largest in the world. So how do you uh, forecast that? How did you work that into your forecast? If, without getting too geeky. Hey, thank you. My name is Ryan Sklar. I'm with World Resources Institute. I have a simple question about uh, your battery estimates. 
Uh, I'm just curious to know to what extent, um, if any, you were uh, incorporating kind of vehicle to grid integration and being able to use the battery assets, which are going to be in the EVs on the road as part of the price mechanisms for determining your, your battery projections. Hi, thank you. Uh, Bill Hederman, University of Pennsylvania and CSIS. My question has to do with scenarios. This was just phenomenally thought-provoking. But uh, on, your, on your decentralization issue, that was kind of economics-driven from what you said. Uh, have you looked at a case where there'd be government-provoked uh, attention to resilience uh, to accelerate that. And then another government question is the carbon price. And we've had, we had this uh, agreement come out of Rome a couple of weeks ago with the oil companies and the big banks asking for a carbon price. Uh, do you look at a scenario where there's a global carbon price? With any of, the, any of these sorts of exercises, you either do them top-down using global equilibrium models that capture all these um, price elasticities fully, and then you lose a lot of the bottom-up detail. Uh, and we do it the other way around. So there is some feedbacks that are hard for us to capture. So for coal, the reason why we're reasonably comfortable, who asked coal? Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong person. Um, the reason why we're reasonably comfortable with coal is coal has a very flat supply curve. So the supply curve for coal is, on average, around $50 a tonne. And it's $50 a tonne over the, the bulk of the middle of the supply curve. There's some cheap stuff and there's some more expensive stuff, $50 a tonne. Um, and when we get back to those fundamental price drivers, which we think we do, the reason why we've got more expensive coal today is because of demand coming out of China, but we don't think that's maintained, then we start to see around $50 a tonne. So coal prices come down in the outlook, but then they stabilise in real terms. And they stabilise in real terms because even as demand falls beyond 2027, 20, you're working down the supply curve and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the fundamental price is still roughly $50. Coupled with that, at the same time, the displacement for coal is a renewables and a gas story, and the renewables curves are sharp enough that it doesn't really matter in many ways what the price is after a certain point. And when we look at, well, we, we've, done a, um, we've done a scenario looking at the sensitivity in the US of new CCGT versus wind and PV. And anything above $3 gas prices, you've got a credible disruption story. Even at $1 gas, this happens you know, five years or so later. So these crossover points happen. So in many ways, the unique angle this outlook takes is a technology story disrupting the commodity cycles of, well, it gets cheaper, we use more. It gets cheaper, but it still gets undercut by the new technologies. So I think that's at the heart of the dynamics. We've, we, it disrupts it, yeah. Um, India is a very particular topic. It has very cheap mine mouth coal. We've done a lot of work over the last 12 months looking at the cost of coal in India. Um, coal is a huge part of the Indian economy. And what we concluded was that a lot of the coal plants in development are mine mouth coal. So they're being built at the mine as opposed to transporting the coal across the country. That matters because the transport costs in India are a significant fraction of the final coal price. And when we get to so those coal plants that are, you know, uh, I, I call them mine mouth, but I think we call them um, 
there's another term we use in the outlook, but they are you know, shoveling out of the mine into the furnace sort of thing. That it, they are very cheap and very difficult to displace. And that's where we see a lot of the build out coming. coming. Um, vehicle to grid. Uh, we don't, don't assume that vehicles on the supply side feed back into the grid. It's only a demand side analysis. We think that's a natural thing. It's not clear to us yet uh, that the vehicles, uh, though all those batteries will play a role. It's probably clearer when you can aggregate, you need to ag aggregate them in some way. And to aggregate them, it's clearer to us in some sort of fleet applications. We have a lot of batteries playing a role um, in being able to manage the manage load, whether that's buses or, or taxi fleets or something like that, that are, at a depot might be a unit. Um, we're gonna do more work on it because it comes up a lot as a question and I think it's kind of a neat thing if it went both ways, but right now we don't assume that we have vehicle to grid um, discharge of batteries uh, to help balance. Question about scenarios. Um, I didn't really understand the first one in terms of government resilience. So there's you know, the major battlefield of cyber and grid. Okay. Uh, do you have any case that's trying that's taking account of more uh, security driven the simple answer is no. Uh, yeah, sounds very interesting. We should, um, but no, not yet. Um, in terms of carbon pricing, we don't model a global, global carbon price uh, at all. We could do that. I, I think we know what carbon pricing does, um, and it would be an interesting exercise to look at exactly what it does country by country if you applied it everywhere, uh, and how fast things would change, and who would win, who would lose, at, at what times. But we do know that looking at Europe, we do kind of know what carbon pricing does, and the UK is a great example, which is that if the price is right, you get, you get rapid shift from coal to gas initially, and then beyond that, you start to see gas coming out. Um, and uh, the challenge has been in the formation of carbon pricing mechanisms that fulfil political ambition and satisfy political angst around them. Um, and there is no doubt about it that from an economics perspective, these exercises, you get uh, with the right carbon price that's priced at the marginal cost of abatement uh, for the power sector, you get a much more rapid transition. And the European story is punctuated by that carbon price, which just drives coal out very fast. Um, and we've seen it in the UK to now. It's, just, it's, it's really the primary reason why coal has come out in the UK over the last five years. And it's gone from I don't know the exact percentages, but it's gone from over 50% to, to, to barely there within a very short period of time. It's an incredible decarbonisation story. Um, we, when we look at um, carbon prices, though, they're always, they're always confounded by secondary policies. So at the same time as we're seeing carbon prices in Europe look good, we're seeing a ramp up of renewables, we're seeing coal phase out policies that are all reducing emissions in one way or another which are undermining the carbon price signal. So it's almost like governments can't help themselves but to drive lots of different things which makes carbon pricing, um, which compromises the role of carbon pricing uh, really readily. Um, so yeah, carbon pricing works, <laughs> but you just got to get it in, I think is the high level answer. Yeah. Okay, we'll do one more round. We've got here, oh boy, y'all did it again. Right there, right there, and this gentleman in the blue. <clears throat> Hi, Reese Edelman, EPA. Thank you, always such a great presentation. Um, my question is about emissions and storage. So we saw that, you know, over the course of the outlook, 
there will still be a point where it's expected there's a significant amount of fossil assets, but also a lot of battery storage. Did the outlook look at all at the emissions impacts when at a grid level storage is not necessarily charged by RE? Hi, Patricia Lawyer from the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute. Um, you talked a little bit about hydrogen, um, and I think you were talking generally about from electrolysis renewables, but you know, have, do you looked at kind of hydrogen from natural gas and natural glass blending and what that could do to kind of reductions in emissions from natural gas? Um, Anders Pedersen, Natural Resource Governance Institute. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and scenario planning is difficult, and with Sub-Saharan Africa, it might be really, really difficult, uh, because there's a lot of energy access to catch up on. Um, I wanted to ask you about how you're seeing the, the energy mix developing. Uh, we've seen some challenges in uptake in microsolar and pay-as-you-go solar. Uh, we're seeing a lot of challenges in getting investments uh, to, to energy and to energy access in general. And that brings me to the second question, which is, it's interesting to see a chart over how, uh, how plants are gonna decrease in capacity over the coming decades. So I'm wondering if you are seeing a scenario where uh, access to capital to, could become cheaper as plants or energy facil electricity facilities become smaller. Is that sort of a way to catch up uh, for the capital needs that are needed in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, so the first question was about um, st storage and the impact of charging batteries, not with renewables. And the first point to make is that electrons and electron, so you're kind of charging from the grid. You don't know if it's a renewable electron uh, or not. Uh, the way that batteries optimise in the, in the modelling is they're looking at spread. So they're looking at the lowest cost generation and the highest cost discharge, and they optimise around that. So, you, what, so the reason why it, we haven't done anything explicitly saying, well, what if it all did that, partly because uh, the exercise is about optim, uh, cost optimisation. And so it loves, batteries love spread. Uh, in terms of um, be, uh, providing dispatchability. They want to charge when it's cheap and dispatch when it's expensive. And so we end up with them naturally moving to move renewable electricity around because it's very cheap to generate. Um, in reality, it's moving all sorts of electrons around. And we, there are projects we know today that are putting gas plants and, and batteries next to each other to help provide the right uh, revenue signals, because batteries can draw a lot of different revenue signals from the system. So you, you're a gas plant with an uncertain generation outlook with a battery that can help provide the gas when you need, like we're seeing those sort of hybrid projects emerge that are more direct, but for this sort of modelling we didn't say, well what if renewables never charge, it didn't, you don't get any batteries really, it, it doesn't really make that much sense, because the batteries are being useful when the renewables aren't available. and. Yeah, you could, you could spread things out a bit, but actually the, the thermal plant's running as much as it can um, when it's needed. But that would mean that the emissions implications are part and parcel of what the grid mix is, right? I mean, it wouldn't be kind of like a rote answer for any single grid in that case, because I think she was asking about the emissions implications of their use. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I'm not. I'm not clear enough on the question to give a decent answer. But that was my best. That was my best go. Um, the second one about uh, CCS, uh, and the question was. It wasn't. It was from the CCS Institute, but it was about hydrogen. Right. And the question was uh, green hydrogen or uh, methane uh, produced hydrogen. And the, sorry, the question was just to be clear. <laughs> Yeah, so no, we didn't. Um, the, the, the report that's coming out uh, in the next, uh, October 8, it's due out on hydrogen. We'll look at all of that. It'll look at production of hydrogen, um, uh, green and brown, and, and the economics of that. Yes, blue, sorry, I've got my colours wrong. Green and blue. And, <laughs> done with lignite um, and, uh, uh, and look at the economics of that and, and how we see it playing out and the cost of electrolyzers and whether there is a crossover point similarly in those technology stories it should be pretty interesting but it doesn't feature here we've just taken some of the green hydrogen costs from that work and, and mapped them into that final part of the analysis um, and finally the sub-saharan african question um, there's a chapter on energy access in the report for the first time, which is we have a group, a frontier power group, that worry about the build-out of the electrification, the build-out of electricity services in parts of the world that don't currently have access or good access. Um, and uh, that has a lot of sort of detail about how we see that's, that part of the, the sector evolving. This outlook is grid only, really. Um, so this is, that's the add-on piece to say, yeah, there's some bits that aren't on the grid. Um, though the outlook does capture electrification as a natural change at a, uh, when we look at demand, we look at the increase in electrification more generally um, as more people have access to electricity as part of the fundamentals of electricity demand, but we treat it separately, uh, separately too. Um, the, the question I got, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to a lot of the question that you asked, but one of the things you asked was about access to capital uh, with smaller projects. What we do talk about in part of the outlook is how this missing money problem in terms of are you getting, can you find the right revenue signals to make the investment? And certainly with smaller plants, it's easier. And so the same missing money that a CCGT in Europe is currently seeing, the renewables plants are finding ways around it because they're smaller, they require less capital, there's less risk and they can find off-takers more readily, so they can find those PPAs and that, that pride and that firm price signal. So there is something to that, that smaller assets are easier to finance um, and may not suffer from some of the challenges that large-scale assets have in a very uncertain uh, outlook. Uh, and so we see that definitely as part of, part of the story. But it, as it applies to sub-Saharan Africa, I don't have a very particular answer for you. Well, Seb, we've run uh, to the end of our time. I know there's a lot of questions that we left on the table, so maybe you can stick around and chat with some of the folks afterwards. But just want to say a big thanks for coming once again and sharing some of your thoughts with us. It's certainly provoked a lot of discussion, so hope you'll do it again next year. Sure, thanks awesome. for having me. Please join me in thanking Seb and being <laughs>